0: Well, um, it is good to be with you all, and last week we were talking about the ethics of the kingdom. This week is part two, and I just want to read through that passage again in Hebrews 13. Last week we talked about just how countercultural it feels to read through a passage like this. So Hebrews 13, one through six, let brotherly love continue and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. We talked about that last week and this week we're talking about these passages here. Um, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Uh, let's just take a moment and pray before we get into our time in the word. Father, thanks for this gathering on Zoom. Uh, we're excited to be back in our building next week. But Lord, uh, whether we are gathered in person or, or scattered and connected um, virtually, Lord, let your Holy Spirit be lit a flame in our hearts that the word of God, which we believe is authoritative over our lives for truth and practice would uh, resonate deeply within us and convict us of our sins and convince us that Christ is Lord, that we may live differently and uh, be filled with the gratitude of your grace in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, thanks again for being here. We're talking about the ethics of the kingdom, and I just want to say up front, in that passage, there's uh, uh, an ethical command about marriage and one about the love of money. I'm going to spend probably no time on the love of money simply because a few weeks ago, we talked about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. So because we've we covered that recently, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. So let's, let's, let's take a look at, at verse four here, this idea of letting marriage be held in honor, the marriage bed being undefiled. I think there's been tons of confusion probably over the years about what something like this might mean. I've mentioned before that sexual morality of the New Testament is, is quite important in that it's at the top of almost every ethics list of ethics. So I said a couple months ago that, you know, people accuse and sometimes even Christians that the church makes way too big a deal about sexual sin uh, over and above other sins. And I've wrestled with that. But when I look at scripture, it looks like the Bible itself makes a really big deal about sexual immorality um, because it's at the top of every ethics ethics list. And I think the reason that is, is because Sexual sin has so much, but has the potential for so much destruction. And it, it has such long lasting effects. In other words, if someone steals from you, you might lose your property for a while. And, and, or if you're the person who's stealing, you might have to pay restitution or do some time in jail. But I don't know that anything has quite the power to level such emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual destruction as sexual sin. So, like I said, the sexual ethics of the Bible are quite conservative. One way people get around this is to say, you know, those passages don't mean what you think they mean. And sometimes uh, liberal theologians do this. They'll say, well, the sexual ethics of the Bible are quite conservative, but that was a different time and a different context, which no longer apply. Uh, One rule for us in approaching, and I I haven't really gotten into my, my message here, but One rule for us in approaching a text of scripture like this is if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's sort of a rule when we read the Bible. In other words, if scripture just has sort of a plain command, um, this now, this doesn't, this may not be true in every sense, but as a general rule, it's a really good way to approach scripture. If the plain sense of the text, Makes sense, then seek no other sense. Why do we need to be told in this passage to honor marriage? Well, there are a few reasons. The Bible tends to command things that we are prone to go the opposite way in. As sinners, we often need to be told to do what our sinful nature rebels against. Now, in the first century, People rejected marriage in favor of aesthetic lifestyle. And a lot. Of, there was a lot of thinking uh, among the Greeks and even some of the Jews that to be truly pious or wise, one had to live a celibate life. And in essence, it, that message was pressing in on the Hebrew Christians to whom this book is written. And it effectively devalued marriage. It's not entirely clear whether Paul was influenced by that, but Paul modifies that in another place in the Bible and says, that his own celibacy, he spoke by permission and not by commandment. In other words, his celibate lifestyle was not because he did not regard marriage highly or thought that that was um, something all people to be faithful or uh, pious had to do. People also rebelled and rebel against marital chastity. That's a, that's a topic here in this passage, the idea of being faithful. And it's a problem with us still today. You know, some statistics suggest that anywhere from 30 to 60% of married couples will cheat at least once in their marriage. I'd like to believe that number is much lower for committed Christians, but I don't know for sure. That's a staggering statistic that over the life of of a marriage, 30 to 60% of married couples will cheat at least once. I can tell you that marriage as an institution is in trouble, and the trouble about marriage in our modern uh, day has had a huge effect on the church. If you haven't listened to anything I've said so far, if you're just getting warmed up, or maybe you've been tuning in and out, I want you to pay close attention because this is the meat about what I want to talk about today, okay? Several years back, I participated in a demographic study. that tried to find out why young people between the ages of 18 to 35 were conspicuously missing from churches today. Now, if you've been paying attention, you realize that it's not just our church. It's all churches across all denominational lines are conspicuously missing that age group. We might call them like millennials or Gen Z now. Some people think Gen Z and millennials are actually the same generation, but we did some research, this is several years back, another pastor and I, and it took us on a journey that looked at all the data from a wide variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, different denominations across our nation and concluded that indeed it was true. Church attendance by people 18 to 35 in that age bracket is at an all-time low. The average church today has less people in this age group than ever before. And we asked the question, are young people just less interested in God than they were a previous, you know, previous generations? Is that why they're not coming to church? And we considered the changing social mores and secularization of our culture. And we determined that that certainly accounted for some of it, But it wasn't the epicenter of the problem about why young people are missing from churches. But over time, one thing did stand out at us that we started to look at more closely. And that was the link between church attendance and declining marriage rates. Church attendance and declining marriage rates. Young people were not getting married out of high school and college at the same rates that they did a generation ago or two generations ago. Now, what you might ask, does that have to do with church attendance? Well, when a person gets married and starts having children, there are a few things that happen. You seek a career, not a job, so there's more long-term financial stability. You look for a good neighborhood to live in to raise a family. You find a good school to educate your children. And marriage couples look for something that promises to help them define moral and ethical boundaries. They want their children to grow up to be good and virtuous people, and nothing quite does that in our society like the church. And for a long time, I left that alone and just said, well, until we're able to restore a vision for the goodness of marriage, we won't see people come back to church, young people come back to church. But recently, a few things have sort of bubbled up to the surface as to why young people aren't getting married, and has everything to do with young men. As secular as the average 26-year-old girl may be today, she's still interested in marriage at rates not too far removed from the previous generation. But there's a shortage of willing and interested men. And there are three reasons that I've found, and I think uh, that there's some weight behind these. The first is pornography, the second is the attack on masculinity, and the third is that there is currently no unifying vision of manhood. So take a look at those three things for a moment. Pornography, the attack on masculinity, and no unifying vision of manhood in modern society. So I just want to talk a little bit about the first, pornography. Part of what marriage is, is sexual gratification, especially for men. Men tend to fall in love with women they find physically attractive. And when men marry, they also tend to grow up. But pornography totally upends that. In a study published in Germany's Institute for the Study of Labor, the IZA, they set out to find find out if porn played a role in whether or not young men get married. And the survey studied the internet habits of more than 1500 men ages 18 to 35. And what researchers found was that the rise of free internet pornography correlated with declining marriage rates. In other words, men aren't pursuing marriage at the same rates that they used to, in large part due to illicit sexual gratification provided by pornography. The second reason that men aren't pursuing marriage is the attack on masculinity. Over the past several years, toxic masculinity, you've heard that phrase before probably, has become this sort of catch-all explanation for male violence and sexism. And while some of it's a backlash against bullying and sexual harassment, it also seems to be a kind of Trojan horse to tear down all existing norms of traditional masculinity. In other words, men are increasingly afraid to be masculine. And that includes embracing the goodness of pursuing members of the opposite sex. In I don't know, must have been around the year 2000. My son was three years old. My wife and I, we had a minivan at the time. And all of our kids were packed in a minivan. And we went to our favorite taco joint in California, where we lived at the time. And there was a drive-thru. It was one of the few really authentic Mexican taco joints that had a drive-thru. And my son was sitting directly behind me. And he was only about three years old. And he's in a car seat. So three years old. And as we drive up to, you know, the little window there to pay for our meal, there's the regular girl that we see when we go there about the time of day that we went, real pretty Hispanic girl. And as we paid, and she said, you know, thanks, give me one second, she walked off. And my three-year-old son behind me said, I gonna love that girl. I gonna kiss that girl. I gonna hug that girl. And my wife said, Josiah. And I said, don't discourage him, you know, because I had acutely felt how our culture was shifting even back then. And, you know, I felt like, you know, uh, he's seen him and his, you know, me and his mother hug and kiss. And uh, that was something that was very natural that was just sort of coming out of him. And it was it was a funny episode. And we talk about it to this day because it was really cute. He was three years old, but he saw a pretty girl. And, you know, at three years old, he said, you know, I want to hug and kiss her. I suspect nowadays that some social scientists would say that that's uh, a case of early onset toxic masculinity. And it needs to be nipped in the bud. But the truth is, it was completely normal. In fact, the pendulum has swung so far away from traditional norms of masculinity in our society that we're left with a generation of emasculated or effeminate men. And I don't say that to attack those individual men, but I'm talking more sort of high level about where we are as a culture. And so my critique is not to individual people. My critique is to, to where we are as a culture and how we got here. The Bible condemns weak and soft men. In fact, the word effeminate in scripture doesn't necessarily even mean homosexual, but inappropriate softness. In other words, men who act like women. Remember, we're talking about why young people are not in church. And a huge part of that is, is young men and how we sort of got to where we are right now. Men who don't act like men. And the only way that scripture can, can do this, the only way that scripture can speak against the idea of men acting like women or men not acting manly or masculine is that it assumes that there is an objective standard of masculinity, and that objective standard is self-evident. When we read Paul's statements to the Corinthians, maybe you've never read this passage before, but Paul says to the Corinthians, doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? And we can determine and talk about the context, but I think from a basic reading, Paul is assuming, Uh, that masculinity is not a social construct, but something that even nature itself defines. Now, does it define masculinity? Absolutely. Well, maybe not, but certainly in a general sense, it does. So the the first thing is pornography. The second is the attack on masculinity. And the third reason that men aren't marrying in the numbers they used to is, number three, there is no unifying vision of manhood. I know this may seem really weird, this discussion in a a sermon or a message about why marriage should be held in honor, but I'm sort of getting to some of the sociological problems that trouble marriage and have a direct effect on um, why it's hard to get young people in church. In our culture today, there is no unifying vision of manhood. There's no universal vision any longer of what it means to transition from a boy to a man. So I'm not talking so much about masculinity as much as I'm talking about what it means for boys to grow up. We no longer use the language of growing up and taking responsibility for yourself. Kids can now stay in their parents' basements, you know, uh, playing video games until they're 30. Um, our laws have changed where kids can stay in their parents' insurance to 26, to they're 26 years old. We can argue the merits of whether that's good or bad. But the idea is we've shifted from a mentality where at some point kids, especially boys have to become men. We don't have this idea anymore in our society. The clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson has observed the difference between men and women in this regard. Peterson says that biology matures women, but men need some grand cause to make them grow up. In generations past, it might've been the call to arms to, during wartime or maybe to become hunters to provide for their families but normally it's the call to marry and have children that make men grow up now are men all men who are not married with children are they all immature you know sort of adult infants no not all but many are the psychologist carl jung Thought that part of the proper development in the last half of life is to rediscover the child you left behind, and most of you, depending on your age, probably have experienced that after you, you know, sort of grew up and became responsible with your life, and maybe found a career and got serious about things, that it might have taken you to forty or fifty years old to discover some of the hobbies that you really loved as a kid. Um, for me, it was bike riding. A few years back, I bought a bike. And remembered how much as a kid I just loved riding down the street on a summer night at 9 p.m. And in recent years I've done that. But I couldn't have done that nonstop for my teenage years and focused on those sort of childish habits. I had to at some point leave that behind and grow up. Uh, again, Paul Carl Jung says it's only usually after you've grown up and made something of your life that those pursuits kind of become valid because you have life perspective. And if you never leave the child phase, you simply become a grown infant. And indeed, you have people who never grow up. Not everyone has to get married. And this passage here in Hebrews is not saying if you are not married, you must get married. In fact, there are people who never get married, who offer their lives in service to others, in friendship, and glorify God in their behavior and their conduct and in their faithfulness. What this passage is saying is, even if you're not married, marriage should be esteemed highly. That marriage should be held in the highest honor by all people. Uh, It matures, it develops, it sanctifies, and often keeps us from disastrous sexual consequences. And indeed, Paul says, if you are not able to uh, constrain your sexual burning, you should marry so that you don't burn in your lusts and desires. So here are some takeaways from this passage. Let marriage be honored by all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral. Sometimes uh, a talk like this does not always give us all the answers how to cure all of the ills of our society. But sometimes the beginning of moving in the right direction is recognizing what's happening around us. And increasingly, my my goal as a pastor is to offer social commentary and social critique and join that to the word of God so that we can understand, as our culture is so rapidly changing around us, what God's word has to say to us. We're people of the book We believe God's word, and we believe it because we believe it's God's own heart for us. Listen, if you're married, you know how hard it is and how hard marriage can be at times. And some of you have had the pain of a failed marriage. Sometimes Christians get divorced. And cynicism about marriage pervades our culture, and some people have abandoned it altogether. And one of the things we need to be mindful of is there are really two voices right now. There's the voice of the culture telling us, why bother? Marriage is a waste. It's an institution that has outlasted itself. Uh, Our culture and our social mores and our understanding of relationships have moved past this antiquated institution. But God is telling us something different. God is telling us that marriage is good, that marriage comes from him that marriage is still good, and it's worthy of our highest esteem, our deepest efforts, because it's important. It's also worth fighting for. Ernest Hemingway once said, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for, and I hate very much to leave it. Would that we would all have that same sentiment, for those of us who are married, about our marriages. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for your grace, and thank you for, uh, Lord, how your word is brought to bear in our hearts as our culture presses in on us. We know we're not the first society to uh, endure challenges about uh, marriage, but Father, in the in the um, in the covenant relationship of marriage, there is something of your own triune relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we see. The the, uh, interconnectedness, the interdependence, and the um, mutual love of the Trinity. Help us, O God, even for those of us who are not married. Not to resent marriage as an institution, but Lord God, to recognize and see that, Lord, you have um, uh, populated the earth over millennia through this institution, O God, as it points to you. And Lord, as we look back on that first marriage in the garden, we also look forward, O God, to the day that you will restore all things that were lost in the fall, including our marriages. Lord, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.